All right. How many of you, that's your song? Your, that's your Christmas song? No one? No one like, wow. A bunch of Ebenezer Scrooges out here. Okay, well, I guess this illustration's not gonna work. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Dan. I have the privilege of serving as uh, the teaching pastor here for our Worthington campus. Really grateful that you're here with us today. We're gonna be kicking off a new series uh, that I'm gonna unpack in a moment for us, but we are just so grateful that you are uh, attending and engaged here in what we believe God has called us to do in the city of Worthington and beyond. Let me remind you, part of our vision, what we are praying for as a church, is that God would entrust to our care, to our church family's care, Uh, 1% of the city of Worthington. Now let me explain what that means. 1% of the city of Worthington is uh, those who are right now uh, not following Jesus, who who don't have any interest in God at all, don't have any spiritual interest really whatsoever. We are asking that God would use our church family to be a catalyst for 1% of this city becoming followers of Jesus. Uh, By God's grace, we may reach many more than that, but that is what we are earnestly praying for for as we seek uh, the welfare and the good of the city where God has placed us right now. We care about uh, more than just Worthington, but because we are here in this place, uh, we wanna be good stewards of where God has uh, placed us. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open up with me uh, to the New Testament book of Colossians, the New Testament book of Colossians. The New Testament book of Colossians. If you need some help uh, finding it in your Bibles, remember the table of contents is your friends or on your uh, fake Bible, just click Colossians right there. It'll it'll take you to this New Testament letter. Okay, so if this is not your Christmas song, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Every every one of us has a Christmas song, one that we listen to on uh, repeat. We love to play until Christmas Day while you're, uh, maybe it's while you're setting up the Christmas tree or uh, you are uh, doing the dishes uh, or just driving to the next Christmas party. Uh, All of us have one Christmas song. That might be mine. I like that one a lot. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the happiest season of all, and you know, I mean, no one raised their hand, but I saw you moving a little bit when, when that song came on. I saw it. Uh, I, I think it's one of those songs that kind of captures the spirit of the moment. It captures the spirit of the moment that we are in right now. I mean, to, to me, December is fascinating. December is fascinating because we, we have this strange moment in time uh, when collectively we have this overwhelming sense uh, that we should be festive and happy and excited for this month. I mean, the entire city gets all dolled up with lights and decorations. We have fancy parties. We have our traditions. We have our music. We have an entire movie industry built around this one month of the year with Hallmark movies. Right? We, we, we have our stories, uh, we have our Christmas rhythms that are on full blast every year. We all join the chorus sung by the four horsemen of the Christmas apocalypse, Crosby, Sinatra, Cole, and Buble, uh, affirming that this is, in fact, the most wonderful time of the year. We know it is because we say it every year. And yet, the question we don't often ask is why? Why is this the most wonderful time of the year? What, what is it about the month of December or starting the week after Christmas or after Thanksgiving? What is it about this 
type, this time of year that produces that feeling inside of us because it, it is real. Like you, it, it, unless you are straight, unless you are actually Ebenezer Scrooge, y'all feel something in December. Or at least there's that feeling that it should be real and it should be something. Where does that come from? And don't get me wrong, this is not one of those messages where I rail against modern uh, Christmas practices, pining for the glories of Christmases long, long ago, the ones we used to know. You see what I did there? I love Christmas, come on. I see, I have no issue with Christmas at all. I have no issue with Christmas. I am not, contrary to popular belief in my own family, a modern day Ebenezer. Uh, uh, I do, however, take issue with a holiday that left to its own devices uh, offers little more than parties for hosting, marshmallows for roasting, and caroling out in the snow, hop-along boots, a pistol that shoots, and a tree in the Grand Hotel. Because at the end of the day, what we will inevitably discover on December 26th Uh, is that unlike the trope of every Hallmark movie imaginable, uh, your long-lost rich uncle did not die bequeathing you a nice quaint horse farm on which you will find your financial problems solved and the true love of your life hiding in plain sight, probably wearing flannel. (laughs) No, we will wake up to find that whatever we were worried about on November 30th is probably still a reality on December 26th you will find that your body still does not function the way that it should, just like it didn't a month earlier. You may find that your relationships, even uh, the ones that you thought were the closest and the most meaningful to you, may still be a mess. And you will discover that the most wonderful time of the year does not become so if only we pretend enough that it is. This is why for so many people, and this might be you, this is why for so many people, the entire month of December feels a bit like a charade. It's, you know, why if, if you're honest, Christmas may feel a bit more like a cute delusion for you, a momentary escape from the pain of the real world that you encounter day in and day out. And if that's you, if, 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 you're, if you're like me, right, this series that we're calling Love's Pure Light is for you. And for the next four weeks, we are going to discover together that this is indeed the most wonderful time of the year, but not because we pretend that it is. It's because this is the moment in time when we reflect on and celebrate a story that is at the same time real and beautiful, mysterious and profound, a story of cosmic significance that shapes and reshapes, orients and reorients our entire lives, framing the way that we understand our past, present, and our future. And uh, through this month, we will explore four major themes through the story of Jesus that solidify this as the most wonderful time of the year. And so if you're not there with me yet, open up to Colossians chapter 1 as we explore that first theme from the story of Jesus today. That first theme is the theme of hope. I'm going to read this passage. I'll pray and then we'll get started. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. It says this, we Always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time uh, today. And I know that each one of us, we come into this place and we're carrying stuff with us. No one comes in with a blank slate. Some of us have had uh, maybe the worst year of our lives. We just feel like we're sitting in the mess of all of it. I may not even know why we're here at a church on a Sunday morning. Father, I pray that you would speak to any of us in that place. Some of us may be coming in riding high uh, off the, the, the year looks like it's ending great. We, we are in a good mood. The Christmas spirit is thriving and alive and well in us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, pierce us to the heart with the word of uh, your truth. Lord, our desire is that we would uh, be a church that lives like Jesus and engages our community like Jesus. And so we pray that uh, as we look at your word, you would do far more than just change our thinking, but you'd change our hearts. And Father, we're also mindful that we uh, gather on a Sunday morning while there are many other churches uh, in Columbus, the greater Columbus area that love Jesus in our meeting today in this moment. We pray that uh, as they sit under the teaching of the word, Lord, you would speak powerfully to them Father, would you encourage them? We pray specifically this morning for Worthington Christian just up the street. We ask that you bless them. We ask that you would go forward and move in power in the life of their church, that they would be uh, great witnesses for the kingdom in Worthington. We thank you for uh, the, the friendship and the gospel we have with them. And Father, we, we ask that you would uh, bring more churches uh, to Columbus that are not just interested in gathering people, but in sending people out for, to be about the kingdom, your kingdom, in this area. And so, Lord, we do love you. We trust you to speak to us today, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first of all, you need to know that it is a miracle that I'm even here today, because Courtney is out of town, and I have been with three kids for the last three days. Um, I am... <laughs> All right, we'll see what happens. All right, Colossians chapter one. Just so we have a little bit of background, I know we're jumping into this book. We're gonna be spending the next four weeks looking at Colossians chapter uh, one. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who's one of the earliest leaders in the Christian movement. And Paul's MO uh, was to travel to different cities through the Roman Empire to tell people about Jesus and to start these communities of followers of Jesus that we today call churches. And much of the New Testament is actually made up of letters that Paul wrote back to the churches or some churches that he's just heard about, which is the case of uh, Colossians, to encourage them, to correct a few things, and just generally check in on how they are doing. Now, the church in Colossae, that's the city uh, that he's writing to, the church in Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, is not one of the churches that Paul started. 
He, didn't, he had nothing to do with starting this one. As far as we know, he never actually uh, visited there. And that kind of fits because Colossae was, it, it was a small town. It's out of the way by the time Paul was writing these letters. It's an insignificant backwoods, not much going on in that type of town. Kind of like the Ann Arbor of the ancient world. And, uh, and we know that based on what he says in verse 3 and 4. Look with me there. Uh, He says this, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard, right? And that that phrase lets us know, he uses this a couple times, lets us know that he's just heard about this church. He's not been there, he's not started it, he's got a report from someone else, we'll see later on that it is from one of his fellow workers who brought word to him. He's, He's heard about what's going on in this Church, But he says that since he first heard about their faith in Jesus, he regularly thanks God for them. Uh, One one of Paul's co-workers, we find this, I think, in verse 5, named Epaphras, came to visit Paul while he was in prison at the time. uh, And he shared with Paul what's going on with the church in Colossae. And, And I love Paul's response to that. Right? He, he hears about this new church, this new community of followers of Jesus, and he is grateful for it. Like, this is encouraging for him to hear news uh, of another church that has uh, taken root and is growing. Someone planted this church. They've been laboring there. He's excited to hear about that. It doesn't matter that it is not his church. Right? It, it is a church that loves Jesus and wants to get after sharing and showing the message of Jesus to the world around them. Paul does not see them as competition. This is important for us to sit on this for a moment. Sometimes churches view other churches as competition. Right? Churches can get territorial. Uh, they, they don't want to share resources. They don't want to, uh, they, they don't want to get too close to uh, another church and some infighting that could, uh, that, that can pop up from side time to time. But it, it is a, as a side note, I think that the same spirit that Paul has here is the spirit that we want at LifePoint. Right? We, we are for other churches, other Jesus-loving churches in Worthington and Columbus. That's why we regularly on Sunday mornings, we pray for other churches. We pray that God would bless other churches because there are other good things going on in other places, not just here. At the end of the day, right, the, the, the kingdom of God is not about life point. It's not about, it's bigger than what's happening here. And we, we get the privilege to be a part of the bigger story of what God is doing in this city and around the world. I mean, you, you may not know this, LifePoint, uh, as a church, we, we are connected to a network that has planted and started over 10,000 churches just in the U.S. over the last 11 years. 10,000 communities where people are engaged in their community, sharing and showing the love of Jesus. And, and when we give to LifePoint, we are giving to this larger network of churches that are about exalting Jesus in their community. It's awesome that we get to be a part of that. And I love that sentiment that Paul has. Like he, he's encouraged by that. He's praying for them, right? It's just, just something we, we can continue to do as God's people is pray for other churches in our communities. Pray that God would use them, that, that, that God would grip the imaginations and hearts and minds of the people gathered in those churches and send them out to share and show the message of Jesus. They're not rivals, He's thankful, Paul says, he's thankful for what's going on in the Colossian church. But look at the flow of what Paul is saying here. We're going to have to work backwards a little bit to track with him. Look again at verse 3. He says, we thank God uh, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and for the love that you have for all the saints. Notice this. He's heard two things about them. 
He's heard two things about the church in uh, Colossae. He's heard about their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints, meaning he has heard that they have become followers of Jesus, that they have turned from an old way of life and found new life in Jesus, that they have pledged their allegiance to him and him alone. They are about the business of Jesus. And second thing, he's heard about their love for the saints. That word saints is a, it's an interesting word. Sometimes it gets a little confusing in our modern context. I mean, today we hear it uh, and, and it comes across as a very religious sounding word. Right? Like you might think of someone like Mother Teresa, maybe St. Nicholas, who was a real person uh, who lived right in the same part of the world in Turkey that Paul's writing to right now in about 300 AD. You, you think of some, you know, like some version of the like Christian version of the Avengers, like those are the saints, right? Um, but, but that doesn't really capture the idea of what Paul is talking about. In the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek, it's not English. Our English Bibles are translations from uh, the original Greek. The, the word that Paul uses here is the word hagioi, which means holy ones. He's holy ones. And what, what's interesting is if you read through all of Paul's letter in, letters in the New Testament, he never calls anybody a Christian. That's not a word he, he we, we don't even know if he knew that. The word didn't really exist uh, in popular use, usage in Paul's day yet. Uh, in fact, the word Christian only shows up three times in our New Testament Testaments today, and two of them sound like they're like a jab. It's not a positive word, right? But the way that Paul designates someone as a follower of Jesus is with this one title. He does it all over his letters. He calls them saints, holy ones. And it's this like theologically loaded word that communicates at the same time like, hey, this is, this is who you are, but it also shows, hey, this is how God sees you. As a follower of Jesus, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, God sees you as one who is in a sense like God, holy like God. And so he can call uh, those who have uh, pledged their allegiance to Jesus, followers of Jesus, he calls them saints, holy ones. And he says, he, he says, I've heard of your love of the saints. He's talking about the rest of the community. Meaning there is something about the way they live in community together that is marked by love and care for one another. And, and, and I think it's really interesting if you kind of break this down for a moment. These two things that Paul mentions, they're like two different realms of relationships that we have. Like he talks about uh, their faith, which is that vertical relationship we have with God. And then he talks about their love for the saints, which is like that horizontal relationship they have with others. You see, you see what I mean? Right? The, the, this relationship, their faith is a relationship with God. Their love for the saints is a relationship with others. And, and I think that's kind of like the, the social part of our lives. And he, he encapsulates really the totality of how they engage the world around them. Right? In their relationship with God and their relationship with others. But look again at verse 4 because Paul introduces, the, I think, what is a really profound idea that how and why we engage in the world around us is intimately connected with what we hope for. How and why we engage in the world around us is intimately connected with what we hope for. Look at verse 4 again. He says, since we heard of the faith, uh, your faith in Christ and of the love you have for all the saints, here it is, verse five, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
since we heard of your faith, we heard of your love, that are, in other words, rooted in, find their source in the hope you have laid up in heaven. And hope, I think, is an interesting word. You might be getting to know this about me. I, I, I love words. And I, 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 I love like digging into what words mean and how we use them. And you know, part of what bugs me at Christmas time uh, is that we take words like hope and joy and peace and love, and uh, which all of which we're going to be talking about this month, uh, and they get plastered all over the place. We put them on signs, we put them on cards, we put them in songs, and while we mean well, while we use these words, we, I think we end up oftentimes, unintentionally, we end up cheapening words that at their core are, are quite powerful. I mean, think about how casually we use the word hope today. If you're thinking about Christmas Day, you might hope you get an iPad might hope for a new Apple Watch. You might hope that the Columbus crew continue their winning streak. You might hope that it doesn't snow while you're traveling so you can get to your destination on time. And at the same time, we will also use hope. Uh, we'll say something like, we hope for a resolution to the war in Israel. You might hope for your cancer to be eradicated. You see, while we use the same words, right, we, we, we know that we, we mean something radically different in those two uh, scenarios. And, and I think what we need uh, to do is we, we need to, to be able to distinguish between what I call small H hopes and big H hopes. Distinguish between those two, small H hopes and big H hopes. And the difference is not, not that one is good and the other is bad, or that one is immature and selfish and the other is altruistic. No, small H hopes are essentially those things that we want. May not, may not be anything wrong with wanting these things. It'd be nice to have a good perk, but they're, they're probably not going to change your life. Right? In fact, whether or not you get that thing that you want uh, may, may have little to no discernible impact on your life a week from now. They are wishes. Big H hopes, though, are different. These are ultimate hopes. And ultimate hopes are tricky because we end up doing something with ultimate hopes that we don't do with anything else. See, we, we end up building these hopes and the uh, achieving of the thing that we hope for into our own identity. It uh, forms how we view ourselves, how others view ourselves. Ultimate hopes are better described not by the word wish, but by the word longing or yearning. I think there is something deep within uh, the fiber of your being that says, I need this. And we all have something we long for. We all have something that we long for. We all have ultimate big H hopes. And, and, and I think it takes some, some real uh, heart examination to figure out what these things are in our lives. They, they're, they're real. They're there. Let me, let me show you what I mean. An ultimate hope. It's just a broad example. An ultimate hope, a big H hope, may be your uh, career and your success in that career. Because in your mind, right, it's not just getting successful. It's, it's because in your mind, this now establishes value to who you are. It's how you understand yourself and the extent to which you believe others value you and your contributions. 
Ultimate hope may be your ability to amass a specific amount of money over the course of your lifetime because uh, that amount gives you in your mind the ability to maintain a, a financially carefree life. It allows you to cultivate the kind of lifestyle that you deem most meaningful. It frees you up for you to believe to be who you believe you really are. An ultimate hope may be where you are able to live in a, in a house that's just a little bit bigger than the one you have now with a little bit more land than the one you have now. You see what I mean? We begin to take these things that can be very good things. It can be a good thing to be successful at your job and do it with excellence. But when it becomes an ultimate thing in our lives, we end up investing more than this thing can ever return to us. For for me, I, I constantly bump up against this in my own heart. My ultimate hope this is, this is a false hope, I, I mean, it, but, but it, it comes up all the time. It's the kind of church I'm able to leave, lead. The size, the, the budget, the kind of music, the recognition that may come along with having the right kind of church. Man, I've never told anybody this. You know the real reason why I don't like conferences? It's because I look on stage and I often think, my initial response is, man, I want to be there. I, I want to have that kind of influence. There's something insidious that worms its way into our hearts and minds and imaginations of what ultimate hopes are, depending on what it is. It can have a profound influence on our Lives and ultimate hope in your life is whatever you tell yourself. If I only had that, everything else would be okay, right? And they can be good things. Might be the right kind of marriage, might be the right uh, amount of intimacy in your relationship with a spouse, might be having a spouse, might be having children. We can create anything into an ultimate hope. It's whatever we think, if I only had that, I'd be okay. Interestingly enough, ultimate hopes are almost always things that are slightly out of reach. You are always almost there. And you probably know someone who already has it. That's why it's real and tangible. You can almost touch it. You can almost taste it. You can almost grab a hold of it. How many of you know... uh, Aesop's fables, the collection of, uh, you know, morality tales. There's this famous line in one of them. uh, I think we're all familiar with, be careful what you wish for, right? I think it's worth bringing up and modifying here. Uh, Be careful what you hope for. Because what we uh, hope for ends up shaping us far more than we think. So what am I willing to risk on the altar of my career? What am I, who am I willing to cut down or cut off if they get in the way of my financial goals and stability? What shortcuts might I be willing to take uh, in the endless pursuit of a bigger, more influential uh, church? Here's the dirty little secret about hopes that no one talks about. You hope for only things in this world and your hope will inevitably end with this world. Let me say that again. If your ultimate hope 
is for the things in this world, things you can see and touch and feel and handle, then your ultimate hope will perish in this world. At the end of the day, while, while you might be willing to give everything for your career, it won't, it cannot give anything back to you. It cannot return the favor. It cannot live up to the ultimate status that you have assigned it to in this life. I mean, we are constantly uh, looking at our horizontal, our, our horizontal relationships with others and asking that they give us something that they could never possibly give us. We hold them hostage to our own desires. We, hold, we, we do this to the people that we love. If I have a set of expectations for Courtney, my, my wife, if she is where my ultimate hope is, I'm going to be constantly demanding that she do something in my life that she could never do. And I become enslaved to that. You hope for only for things in this world and your hope will end in this world. Friends, the reality is we need to hope for something outside of this world. This is why I find Paul's words so profound here. Look again at verse four. Look how he says this. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope, here it is, laid up for you in heaven. See, Paul is not talking about a small H hope. He's talking quite literally of an outside this world ultimate hope. You see, the Colossian church, the, the church today, we, we engage in those two realms, our vertical relationship, our horizontal relationship that Paul talked about in verse four, because of the ultimate hope we have laid up in heaven. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are actually liberated from looking to those around us to be and provide our ultimate hope. We have a different source that we look to. We look to our vertical relationship to find our ultimate hope. This is what Paul is talking about today. It is the ultimate hope that God is at work to one day make all things right, all things new, that what we experience here and now in this life is not all that there is, but that we await the fullness, the beauty and power of God's kingdom where there is no more weeping, no more longing, no more yearning, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sorrow, where we experience an eternity of life the way it's meant to be lived. This is the hope laid up for us in heaven. Interestingly enough, it is a future hope. What does that mean for the way we live and engage the world today? Come back next week and we'll talk about it. <laughs> is he reframes everything. Do you see how saying my ultimate hope is not going to be found in my, hor my horizontal relationships, but in my vertical relationships freezes up from demanding and becoming a taskmaster over even those who are closest to us, trying to pillage even the good things that God has entrusted to us, to demand something, they give us something that they could never give. He says, as a follower of Jesus, you have a hope laid up for you in heaven that supersedes anything else we could encounter here and now in this life. And it strikes me that this kind of out of this world hope, this ultimate hope, is exactly what is at the heart of the Christmas story, isn't it? I mean, think about what we celebrate at Christmas. 
that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, of all things that were, are, and will be, the one who is outside our own experience, the all-powerful, all-knowing, transcendent, majestic one, this one, as the Gospel of John reminds us, took on flesh to dwell among us. That God himself stepped down into human history to become like us, for us, in the person and work of Jesus, living the perfect life, the, the, the one we should have but failed to live. And while our failure to live the way God created us to live, our sin, our, here's how it plays out, our regular demanding of our horizontal relationships, what we could only get from a vertical one, well, that should have led to our death. Jesus lovingly and willingly chose to arrive in our place to take on our judgment for our sin, to die our death. Yet the good news of the gospel is that he rose again from the, the promise and hope of new life, true life, and everlasting life for any and all who would trust in him, pledging their allegiance to him and him alone. In other words, at the heart of the gospel story, at the heart of the Christmas story, it is that the one who was out of this world stepped into this world to free us from the false hopes of this world that we might cling to him, that we might take hold of the good news of great joy for all people in a right vertical relationship with him. And, and notice this. Look again at verse three and four. It is the ultimate hope laid up for us in him that fuels our faith and love for those around us. See, hope in Paul's mind is not this nice sentiment. It's not something he would just throw on a greeting card and send it on. No, it is a reality that God offers us something far greater than anything else this world could offer. And he says you can hold on, you can cling as desperately as you need to to the hope laid up for you in heaven. And now I want you to think back with me for a moment uh, to how we started all of this off today, asking a very simple question, why? Why is it the most wonderful time of the year? It is because if even for only a month, as followers of Jesus, we retell the old story to reform and relocate our hope. We join rhythms celebrating things that are not of this world, but celebrating the one who stepped into this world. You know, we're trying something new this year at uh, LifePoint. And those of you who maybe grew up in a church community that was a bit more formal, uh, this might be familiar, but we are uh, observing, uh, in a sense, the Advent season. Now let me explain to you what this means. This is a problem with the word Christmas. We use Christmas in modern uh, uh, language to communicate uh, either a single day, December 25th, or an entire you know, season leading up to that one day. 
Right? That, that, that is a modern thing. Most followers of Jesus throughout history would have no idea what you were talking about if you used the word Christmas. Instead, what they did is they said, hey, we want to take an entire uh, month out of the year and we want to intentionally prepare ourselves to reflect on and celebrate the good news of great joy for all people. And one of the tools that the church has historically used for over 1,500 years uh, is uh, the Advent season. And here's how this would typically play out. There'd be a series of candles that they would light uh, on stage. These four candles we have here and one in the middle. That one in the middle represents the Christ candle, Jesus, who is the light of the world. And we remember uh, that uh, Jesus is at the very center of our uh, church community. He, he, He is what we are all about here, right? So we have a candle that stands for him. And the four candles around him represent four other themes that we're going to be looking at in this uh, series. Hope, joy, peace, and love, or faith. Those two are interchangeable. And the reason we're doing this is not to just do some old school kind of thing, right? Some of you may, may feel like, hey man, this feels like way too formal for what I was, this is like old religious stuff that I'm, I'm not interested anymore. We, I, don't, I don't want to be a part of this kind of thing. Here's why we're doing this. Because the Advent season is intentionally designed to be formative. Because every other part of our entire society right now is organized uh, to tell you there is something different you should hope for. There is something better you should hope for. And you could probably find it on Amazon. And what the church does in this month is we celebrate Advent as we say, no, we we are going to relocate our home. We're going to refix our hope, not on the things of this world, but on the one who stepped down into this world. And so the church has used a series of uh, passages of scripture to tell the story of Jesus coming and cultivate this longing within each one of us. And we're going to participate in that today in the Advent series. Advent is the Latin word for uh, coming or arrival. And so in the Advent series, we look back both on Jesus' first birth, his arrival, and uh, look forward to his second coming. That's what we do in this season. And all of this is designed as we go through it week in and week out. Uh, And, uh, you know, by God's grace, we'll do this again next year. What we're doing is we are retelling the old story that reforms our hearts, reforms and relocates our hope. And so what you're going to see in the next couple weeks outside of today is you're going to see families from our church come up and lead us through an Advent candle lighting and it will feel formal, but the idea is that we look and listen to the words that we're saying and say, this is where my hope is located. This, uh, in the case of next week, is where my joy is located. This is where my peace is located as we go through these candle lighting. So let me read this as we jump into this Advent rhythm. Advent is a season when the church looks uh, joyfully backwards and longingly forward. We look back to the incarnation of God and the birth of Jesus to see the dawn of redemption as his first coming and expectantly forward to his awaited return. But in our world today, there are times when we simply grow weary and yet our expectancy must not fade. 
We still look forward to a day when our mighty God, our Prince of Peace, eradicates all evil and establishes everlasting justice. And so today we light the first candle of this Advent season, the candle of hope. And for us, this is a picture of light that is seen even amid darkness, a reminder of both the present and expectant hope in Christ. Here's the words from Isaiah chapter 9. These will be very familiar to some of us. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those of you who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you with uh, joy at the harvest as they are glad when the, uh, they divide the spoil. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his gov government and of peace, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David over his uh, kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and for forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so today we light this first candle proclaiming hope, the hope of our Savior, Jesus. And it feels trivial it feels like, you know, what does this have to do with anything the way that we live today? And yet as we light this candle, we are entering in the longer practice of followers of Jesus who are saying there is a deep temptation to hope and demand from our horizontal relationships what we can only find in our vertical relationship with God. We are recentering, relocating our hope on Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, we long for your coming. We acknowledge that we often feel the searing pain of this broken world, and yet we know that this isn't the end. We watch for your light on the horizon and find our hope in our Prince of Peace. Give us hope, Lord, when we grow weary. Grant us strength when we grow weak. For you are our hope now and forevermore. Amen.